on it. Maybe you've read an article about it. In Iraq, on a mount of Nineveh's ruins, you can find the remains of the mosque of the prophet Yunus, as he's known in Arabic, as he's known to Muslims. Prior to being a mosque, it was an Assyrian church, and it's thought by many Muslims, Jews, and Christians that Jonah was buried there. It's just a stone throw away from the city gates of ancient Nineveh. The tomb of Jonah was recently recovered from terrorists, but much of it has been destroyed. Now, if it's true that Jonah was actually buried there, right outside the gates of Nineveh, it's rather ironic with how the book actually ends. This is a strange chapter, isn't it? A bizarre ending to the book. If you're taking notes, I have one main idea and three points. Let me give you the main idea right up front. It's this. God has compassion for the people he's created. God has compassion on the Ninevites who are wicked and evil. God has compassion for Jonah, even though he keeps messing up. God has compassion for the people he's created. We'll see that in three points. Number one, Jonah's anger. Number two, Jonah's comfort. Then number three, God's compassion. Anger, comfort, and compassion. First, number one, Jonah's anger. It's been a wild ride so far with Jonah. God calls the prophet to go preach to Nineveh. And where does he go? He goes in the opposite direction towards Tarshish. He sets sail to go as far away from where God wants him to go as he can go. On the way there, God appoints a storm. Jonah's asleep in the ship. The captain goes and wakes him up. The sailors find out it's Jonah's fault. And per Jonah's request, he is hurled out of the ship and into the sea. The storm starts calming, but not before Jonah starts sinking to the bottom of the ocean, losing his breath. There's seaweed covering his face. And God sends a friendly fish to swallow him, to hold him for three days and three nights. Jonah praises God. Jonah prays and is thankful for deliverance. God had saved him. After that time, God appoints the fish to spit Jonah on dry ground. And the call, the missionary call, comes to Jonah once again. Jonah! Go to the Ninevites, and this time, Jonah goes. God gives him a message, and Jonah preaches a message of repentance. And almost immediately, the Ninevites, they repent. They turn from their evil ways. It's fast. It's miraculous. Even the king turns away from evil and calls a fast. God relents from destroying the Ninevites. What an amazing mission trip. It goes really well. Jonah now has a career in writing a short-term mission trip, how-to book. Seems like the perfect ending to the narrative. Reluctant prophet receives grace from God and repents, shares grace with others who repent. And we all live happily ever after. The end. Well, not exactly. It's not over. There's another chapter to this true story. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1. But 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Wait, didn't the Ninevites just repent? This is glorious news. But not to Jonah. He was angry. Why? He didn't set sail in the opposite direction because he was afraid of the wicked Ninevites. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah wasn't afraid of the Ninevites. Jonah was afraid that the Ninevites would repent. There was no fear of what the Ninevites would do to him. There was fear that they would actually listen to him. Jonah despised them. Maybe he somehow knew that there would be another wicked generation that would rise up from the Ninevites. And there was. Forty years later, a new generation. We're back to their evil and horrid ways. Crushing and scattering the Israelites by their brutal aggression. Nahum 3 tells us of the savagery of the Ninevites. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. That's bad news. Forty years later, the Ninevites go back to their evil ways. Maybe somehow Jonah knew of this. Maybe the Ninevites had hurt people Jonah was close to. Maybe, their, maybe his friends, his family. Or there was racism in his heart. To see those Ninevites saved was just a blow to his pride. Maybe he cared too much about his reputation. I mean, since Israel as a whole were abused and persecuted by the Ninevites, what might happen to the great prophet and his return to Israel? Certainly it wouldn't have been a hero's welcome. His approval rating may have hit an all-time low. Hey, hey, there's, there's Jonah. He's the guy that saved our enemies. Well, there was no happy parade. But Jonah was offended because the Ninevites... Received grace. His bitterness, growing resentment, and lack of forgiveness towards Nineveh poisons Jonah's relationship with God. Our hearts can't be right with God if they're not right with man. This is why when we take communion, we often say, if you're unreconciled with someone else here in the church, don't take communion in the midst of your conflict. Resolve it and be reconciled and participate with us the next time we celebrate communion. In this case, Jonah just couldn't believe that the Ninevites would receive God's grace. For whatever reason, he was bitter towards them. I had an experience similar to this, smaller scale, but recently I gave a new friend of mine a book as a gift. And like any other gift that you give, you're expecting some type of excited, thankful, joyful response to the gift. I gave him this book. 
And upon looking at the book, his smile, his countenance quickly changed from a smile to a frown, and he quickly became angry. He said he actually knew the author personally, and that that man had hurt him and offended him in the past. I mean, talk about awkward. Talk about the chances of that happening. I mean, here's your book. He was angry. Apparently, there was more to the story. I explained to him that the author had actually become a Christian since the time that he knew the author and that his life had been transformed and changed. Now, in the end, my new friend sort of took my word for it, but not without hesitation and disbelief. I mean, how could God save such a bad man? That seemed to be his big question. And that's Jonah's question. He's not truly repentant over everything yet. In verse 2, he blames God. He actually quotes from Exodus 34, which is also found in Joel chapter 2. It's an ancient quote. God is a gracious and merciful God. He actually says, hey, one of the reasons for my sin is because of who you are, God. You're gracious, you are merciful, you are kind. He's explaining his sin. This is why I disobeyed you. Now, as soon as Jonah starts explaining why he sinned, he's undermining his own repentance. God, this is why I didn't go to Nineveh. It's because of you. It's your fault. Now, who does this remind you of? I mean, think back to the garden, to Adam and Eve. And Adam says to God, God, it was, it was the woman. It was the woman you made. It was her fault. So actually, God, it's your fault. Now, true res- repentance takes responsibility for your sin and asks for forgiveness. Repentance doesn't include caveats like, well, but if you... You know, you you don't understand what it's like for me to be married to this person. But I had a difficult childhood. But I've always been impatient. It was just how I was made. That's how I was when I was a child. But everyone else cheats like this at work. Everyone else talks like this at school. It's never someone else's fault for your sin. Never. It's even possible to undermine your repentance in the act of making an apology. Have you done this? I know I have. Here's an example. I'm sorry I lost my temper and yelled at you. But what you said just pushed me over the edge. An explanation always kills an apology. It always does. Jonah is blaming God for his sin. He doesn't come clean. Jonah's so offended in verse 3. He says, hey, I'd rather die. I don't want to live. That's anger. That's extreme anger. Verse 5, rather than celebrating God's grace in the Ninevites, he sits outside the city. The mission is successful. Angels are rejoicing and Jonah is pouting. He's not joining in the communal repentance celebration. It's like when you host a birthday party for one of your children. For those of you who have kids and you have multiple kids, you'll understand this quite clearly. You throw a birthday party for one of your kids. It's a great day. But at the same time, one of your other children gets really grumpy. 
They're really jealous that their sibling gets to play all the games first, that their sibling gets to open up all the presents, that their sibling gets to blow out all the candles on the birthday cake. And so they sulk and they complain and maybe even sit out from the games just with a real grumpy feeling. Instead of celebrating, they're complaining. This is what Jonah looks like. He's sitting outside the communal repentance and celebration and he's pouting and he's saying, Oh God, you did this! Oh God, it's your fault, you're gracious, you're merciful. The Ninevites are repenting. They're in sackcloth and ashes. There's a communal fast going on, but Jonah will, will have nothing to do with it. And he's sitting there outside the gate, not so secretly, hoping that maybe at the end of the day, God will actually judge the Ninevites anyway. Or maybe the Ninevites will slip up. It's a day of revival, and Jonah's miserable and offended. What did Jonah forget in the midst of his one-person pity party? That he didn't deserve God's grace either. Fellow Christian, think about this for a moment. The Apostle Paul. Formerly, he was a murderer of Christians. He stood there and wholeheartedly affirmed the stoning and killing of Stephen, the first martyr. He would drag Christians out of their homes, put them in prison. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, was a slave trader. They didn't deserve God's grace either. And how about you? Your life before Christ, you weren't a nice person Aren't you glad that God didn't treat you like your sins deserved? The Bible says none of us are any better than the Ninevites. On the one hand, Jonah was absolutely right. Those wicked Ninevites, they deserved to be obliterated from the face of the earth. They don't deserve another breath, another heartbeat. But neither did Jonah. And not just for his disobedience, for going to Tarshish, although surely for that, but his whole life, he was a sinner. Surely Jonah didn't forget that he was a sinner. More than likely, he thought that there were sinners and sinners, lowercase sinners and uppercase sinners, small sinners and mega sinners. Maybe you feel that way. You feel like you're little sinner. The terrorists, they're far worse. Adulterers, murderers. Ah, they're the big sinners. But all sin leads to death. In one sense, there aren't small sins and big sins. Small sins are big sins because there are all sins against God. Here's why all sin is damaging. It's actually rebellion. When we disobey God, it's not just merely having a different preference than God. It's cosmic rebellion in our hearts. It's stronger than any protest you may see in your home country when thousands fill the city center to protest government actions. No, when you sin, you're not only protesting in your heart against God, but a coup has happened in your heart. When a coup happens in a country, the leader of the country is forced out by another leader. So when you you sin, a coup happens in your heart. You spiritually take God off the throne of your life 
and you insert yourself. You remove God from leadership over your life and you put yourself in charge. You're saying, oh God, you don't know how to lead. Your law is not a law of love. Your law is a ruthless and awful law. I know better than you, and so I'm reinstating myself in leadership over my one-person kingdom. The Ninevites, Jonah, you and me all deserve death and judgment for removing the true king off the throne of our lives. The only justice for this coup against the holy God is immediate death. God is a holy and perfect God. A rebellious sinner cannot enter into his presence. God would have to be the one to provide a way to remain holy and to remain just and to remain perfect at the same time to allow us reconciliation to him. Oh friend, we are dead. We are sinners. There is nothing we can do. But the good news of Christianity is that there is something God has done. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, came to the earth 2,000 years ago and he lived with God the Father on the throne of his life every minute of every day. He never sinned. Never. And then he marched to his own death on the cross where the sins and the wrath of God for all believers was placed on him and he rose from the dead proving that that sacrifice had taken place. It was a coup. And it's not even a non-violent, bloodless coup. It required the blood of the spotless Lamb of God in a most violent death to atone for your coup against God. This is how God's perfect justice could take place. There either had to be death for us, or somehow God had to take that payment for us. Oh, friends, God should have destroyed Nineveh. God should have destroyed and judged Jonah. God should have judged us. But by repentance of our sins and trust in Jesus to save us, God forgives us. This is brilliant news this Friday and every Friday. Oh, friend, if you're here and you don't yet follow Jesus, maybe you've been attending for the last several weeks and you've been hearing this good news throughout the book of Jonah over and over and over again. I want to tell you one more time, you need God to be on the throne of your life. God knows best. Who's to say that any one of us knows better than God? Resist the urge to be in charge of your kingdom and repent. Of your sin and trust in Jesus to save you. Only then will the actions of others not devastate you. Only then can you live a life of joy and forgiveness. Only then can you have life everlasting. And Christian friend, this is news that we need to hear today because this is how we get the strength to forgive others. This is how we get the strength to remove the bitterness that was found in Jonah's heart. The Apostle Paul writes to the Colossians, Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Do you see how forgiveness affects our relationship with God? If you're withholding forgiveness from someone, you're not really understanding the forgiveness God has shown you. The unforgiving servant in Jesus' parable that Jojo read for us earlier had no concept of how forgiveness should impact his life. He didn't get it. 
Forgiving others always flows from your own sense of having been forgiven. Paul doesn't say we forgive others because they deserve it. Of course not. We forgive because we're aware that we've been forgiven and we have received a far greater, far more costly forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. This doesn't mean we'll necessarily be in relationship with that person, but it does mean we don't withhold forgiveness. Jonah's angry. Jonah's bitter. Jonah seems to be withholding forgiveness. But Jonah's also very concerned with his own comfort. That's the second point in the text. Jonah's angry. Number two, Jonah's comfort. Let's look at that. Verse four, God speaks to Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? The preceding verse, Jonah asks to die, which is an absurd request. God doesn't even acknowledge it. He just asks him a question back. Jonah doesn't answer, but he goes outside the city. He makes a booth or a tent there. He won't even associate with the Ninevites or talk with them. He's not making friends with them. No one's inviting him to stay in their guest room for the night. He probably wouldn't even take them up on it if they did. It's hot. Jonah's waiting to see what happens. And in God's mercy, verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. If Nineveh coming to faith didn't bring joy to Jonah's heart, then what did? A plant. I mean, how wonderful for Jonah. He wasn't going to get sunburned anymore. It's a great day. It's hot in the desert. We may not remember that during our freezing 20 degrees Celsius temperatures this month in Dubai. I can see many of you have winter jackets on right now. We're freezing. But soon enough, July will come. And we'll want some shade and air conditioning upon air conditioning upon air conditioning. Well, Jonah has a new best friend, a vine. It grew miraculously. Picture time-lapse photography. Just in a matter of seconds, this vine grew from a seed and provided this big enough vine to give Jonah shade. Jonah was exceedingly glad. The text literally says that Jonah rejoiced with a great joy. There, there's emphasis earlier on the exceeding anger and now exceeding joy. The text basically repeats itself twice. Mass revival brought Jonah anger, anger. A vine of comfort brought him joy, joy. Sounds ridiculous, but verse 7. Then dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Worm destroys it. Then verse 8, there's a scorching wind. Jonah feels faint. God, can I just die? It is better for me to die than to live. God talks to Jonah again. Verse 9, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? It's an important question for Jonah. Really? 
a plant? Well, God's question to Jonah calls us to consider the same thing for ourselves. To put it in Jonah's terms, what makes us glad? Are we grateful for God's grace to us and delighted about signs of God's grace in others? What makes us happy? What brings us double joy? How do you respond when the vine is gone? You lose your career, your health, your wealth, your marriage. You don't get into the university that you want. A friend disappoints you. One of the ways we can know the answer is by what crushes us when we lose it. What is it that we just can't live without? God is trying to show us a mirror of ourselves here. Jonah's love for the vine is what our idolatry looks like. There are people around him being saved. There are Ninevites who are turning from their evil ways. And Jonah says, I just want to die because of my wants, my needs, my desires are not being met. The way I think, the way my life should go is not coming to pass. Well, friends, as we read this, we do need to thank God for the vine. We need to thank God for the vines in our lives, but we can't live for the vine. Vines always wither at some point. They always die. Martin Lloyd-Jones was born in Wales, a medical doctor turned preacher. He served as a senior minister at London's Westminster Chapel for 30 years. He was an outstanding preacher, had a huge impact. Large crowds would gather. Many came to faith through Lloyd-Jones's powerful preaching ministry. Well, toward the end of his life, one of his colleagues came and visited Lloyd-Jones when he was sick and confined to his small room. And he asked the doctor, how is it with you? You've traveled the world. You've preached to great, vast crowds. You've seen God do many things. Now you're confined to this room. How are you doing with this? To which Lloyd-Jones replied with the words of Jesus. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Lloyd-Jones had enjoyed the vine of blessing on his ministry, but he didn't live for the vine. So when the vine was taken away, when it had withered away, Lloyd-Jones still had his joy he still had hope in God. He found his joy not in ministry success or his health, but in knowing that he belonged to Jesus. God gave the worm. God gave the wind. God gave the vine. He appointed them. In each case, God gives and he takes away. He's in control over everything. The worm and the wind, they were not an accident. God didn't just allow them to happen. God put them in place. As one pastor has said, nothing comes into your life without going through the hand of God first. This means we can trust God when we have the vine. This means we can trust God when we don't. You really have two choices when you lose the vine. That's it. Losing the vine will either make you angry at God and angry at your life, or it'll push you to worship God. You have a choice. My prayer for us as a church is that we would be moved to worship when we lose that vine. I know 
for many of us, the vine that we've lost these days is our jobs. I've talked to many of our members who are without work. Many of us are trying to get another one. I mean, some of us are trying to get a better job. Some of you have a job, but you haven't been paid for four or five months. I've heard countless stories of employers withholding wages. Some of you have had your wages cut. Your employer has broken contract with you. Others are threatened to be made redundant or switched to another department you don't want to go to. Some of you are being threatened to just be transferred outside the country. You don't want to leave. How will you respond to the vine being destroyed by a worm or the wind? Will you be angry or will you worship? Will you be angry with God or will you worship God? What do you love more, the gifts of God or the giver of the gifts? Now, friend, I do pray that you get a job as your pastor. I am praying for many of you personally by name and praying for the rest of us that the Lord would provide for our needs, that God would give you a job, that God would allow you to eat and have lodging and provide for your family. I certainly pray for that. It is very important. But more importantly than that, I am praying that you would worship God in this trial. That you would worship God in these difficult moments. That you would trust God to provide everything you need. Oh friend, will you trust God even if your life savings have evaporated? Will you trust God even when you don't know how to make the next rent payment? Will you trust God when nothing in front of you is clear and you don't know what the next step should be? Will you trust God when... CV after CV after CV, not only don't, not only get turned down, but you never hear from that possible employer at all. Is God enough, or do you just live for his gifts? My prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow in this time. Here's a few ways we can pray. Lord, help me to receive your vines with thankfulness. Lord, help me to hold on to your vines with open hands. Lord, help me to love you more than I love the vine. Well, Jonah's angry at God's offending grace. Jonah's angry because God has taken away his comfort. But in all of this, we see that our God is compassionate. That's the third and final point this morning. God's compassion. Verses 10 and 11. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? God tells Jonah, You care about the plant. You had nothing to do with the plant. You didn't create it. You didn't make it. You didn't cause it to grow. It came one night. It was gone the next. Jonah cared more about plants than he did about people. And God says, you like the plant. What about the people I created? What about the people I made? Should I not care about Nineveh, where there are 120,000 image bearers that I made? 
That number 120,000 could possibly refer to young children, but it's most likely a description of a people who've lost any sense of morality. They're unable to distinguish between good and evil. We use right and left for directions. Go down the street, take your second left, first right, and we're the third building on the left. A person who can't tell their right hand from their left will soon lose their way. They'll become hopelessly lost. God has compassion on them precisely because they're evil and precisely because they can't choose rightly. The very reason Jonah despises them is the reason God has compassion on them. We just consider the whole book of Jonah. God's compassion for the Ninevites runs deep. God calls the prophet Jonah to go preach to them. God sends a storm to intercept Jonah as he sailed away. God exposed Jonah's sin. He appointed a great fish to save Jonah, spit Jonah on dry ground. He gave a second call to Jonah. Go to the Ninevites. He gave faith and repentance to the Ninevites. He changed the heart of the king to lead a fast, to lead repentance. He poured out a spirit of prayer among the people and he relented from destroying the Ninevites. All of that to save the Ninevites. And all of that to work on his servant, Prophet Jonah's heart. God loves the people he's created. God has compassion on the people he's made. The value of one person's life is worth more than anything we can find in this world. Mark chapter 8, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? The whole world. I mean, think about that. One soul, one person's soul has more value than the whole world of stuff combined. Everything in the world, the whole world is worth less than one single soul. The treasures of this world will pass away, but a human soul remains forever. C.S. Lewis wrote famously in his essay, The Weight of Glory, that there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Every human being is made by God in the image of God. Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he's made. All of it. He has compassion for the 240 million Bengalis and 300 million Indonesians worldwide who don't know Jesus. Mogadishu, Somalia, 1.5 million people whom God has compassion on and perhaps only a handful of believers. Nigeria, there's lots more people than this, but there are 61 million people alone living among unreached people groups. 61 million Nigerians unreached with the gospel, filled with tribe after tribe after tribe who don't know Jesus. The Republic of Ireland, 4 million people whom the Lord loves, 0.01% evangelical Christian. Croatia, 4 million people, 0.004% evangelical Christian. Poland, 38 million people, 
0.002% Christian. In Turkey, 75.7 million people who don't know their right hand from their left and only 7,000 believers. That's 0.00009% believers. Yemen, a country nearby here, not far at all, a place we can't easily visit with 24.3 million people whom God has compassion on. He's made the Yemeni people and they are dying each and every day without ever hearing about Jesus. Two of my close friends were serving in Yemen, proclaiming Jesus there. They and others had to leave a couple of years ago when the terrorist killed one of their friends, shot him in the head in broad daylight. And my friends were put on a hit list and had to leave the country. The Yemenis need Jesus. Millions of people. Yemen, nine times the population of what we have here in Dubai and hardly any access to the good news. People God has made in his image. There are cities I've never heard of until this week with millions of people whom God loves. I love India. I've been there many times. But to be honest, true confession, there are a number of cities with millions of people in them that I had never even heard of until this week. Names of cities I can't even pronounce. I'll try anyway. Thane City, 2 million people. Patna in Bihar, 2 million people. Meerut, 2 million image bearers. Faridabad, 2 million people. 1 million person cities, Solapur, Jodhpur, Jabalpur. There are 145 cities in China that have at least 1 million people in them. So many image bearers whom God has made. He made each of them. He knows each hair on each head. Every person, he made them. He created them. He knows them. He knows everything about them. God intimately knows each of the ten families. The 43 people living in the village of Ahangar in northern Afghanistan. Zero gospel access. None. No TV. No internet. No Christians. I had a job right after university and right after I married Gloria where I was able to take university students on short-term mission trips all around the world. And on one of our assignments, it was actually close to home, we were to take the gospel and do a kids' camp with the Tarahumara Indians in the bottom of the Copper Canyon in Mexico. It was just a day's drive away, not too far, but once you got there, you had to hike for another day. They lived in the bottom of this steep mountain, the bottom of the valley. It took about 10 hours, and it was so steep that we could only take a small backpack and a little bit of water. So we actually hired a man and all of his donkeys to carry our big bottles of water and our luggage down to the bottom of the valley for us. You can imagine by the time we got to the bottom, we were out of water and we were awaiting the arrival of our donkeys and we quickly celebrated when off in the distance we saw the drove of donkeys arriving with our water. We erupted in cheers. It was the happiest I'd ever been to see donkeys in my entire life. They came and we set up camp, set up shop for the week. These Indians literally lived inside the mountain. They carved out holes and craters in the mountain where they would live. No access to power, no air conditioning, no Jollibee or McDonald's, no newspapers, no 
Spanish language even. We brought translators with us and did what we could with these kids. It was startling to us, these people we didn't even know existed, men, women, and children made in the image of God. Interacting with those kids that week at the camp was incredibly impacting for us. We realized that God cares about those Tarhumar Indians living at the bottom of this valley. And friends, there are millions of valleys unknown to us in this world where his image bearers live and work. We get a little taste of it in our everyday living here in Dubai. People from the world, people from many of these places I mentioned earlier, gathering here on the Arabian Peninsula. God loves the person standing next to you on the metro. God loves the person waiting with you in the queue at the bank. God loves the people sitting near you at the cafe at the mall. He made each of the drivers around you who are stuck with you in Sheikh Zayed Road traffic. God made them. God is telling Jonah and he's telling us, you like comfort, Jonah? You pity the plant for which you did not labor? You didn't make it. You didn't cause it to grow. How could I not love the Ninevites? 120,000 people who don't know God. He says, even the cattle are more important than the vine. This is how silly our idolatry of comfort looks like. And that's where the book of Jonah ends. That's it. Done. We're done. Verse 11. We can go home. One of our former elders, Max Stiles, once sent out the text of Jonah to a group of student leaders before a conference where they would study it. One of the leaders actually wrote him back and said, Hey, Mac, you forgot to send us the rest of chapter 4. You left out the ending of the book. But this is it. It's an odd ending, isn't it? It doesn't seem fitting. Does Jonah finally wake up from his spiritual slumber and go back into Nineveh? Does he stop pouting? What else does he say to God? There's no closure for us. The ending doesn't wrap together all nicely and neatly. I think it's left unfinished because we're supposed to live out the conclusion in our own lives. How will we respond to God's word? I think Jonah finally got it. It doesn't tell us, but consider it. Who wrote the book? We don't know 100% for sure, but it was likely Jonah. Who else is going to write about his time at sea with the sailors? Who's going to write about his time in the belly of a, of a fish? Who's going to write about the time where he sat outside the city by himself? At the very least, it's a biography of Jonah where he provided the details to someone somehow. It seems like eventually Jonah got it, and this is his testimony. He realizes how ridiculous his actions are, and he writes them all in humility for all of us to hear and all of us to learn. And so, friend, as we come to the end of this book, how will you respond to God? The book of Jonah is all about grace. And believer, God has saved you. He's had compassion on you. He said his love and he said his affection on you. Will you forgive others who've hurt you? 
Will you reject the idols of the world and love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? God has compassion for the people he's created. Will you show compassion to fellow image bearers? Will you show true love to those image bearers around you that don't know Jesus by proclaiming the gospel and by loving them well? Oh, friend, as we come to the end of this book, would we, Redeemer Church of Dubai, would we be a church that's all about grace? Let's pray together. Father, your grace is amazing. That you would pour your compassion and steadfast love upon us is unimaginable. Oh, would this truth melt our hearts today? Would we respond to the book of Jonah by showing compassion to the world? Would we be quick to forgive? Would we be quick to reject selfishness? Would we be quick to reject comfort? Oh, Father, would we love the image bearers around us? Your love is too amazing to put into words. Would we never forget the love you've shown us in Christ Jesus? Would your love always be amazing to us? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.